All right, so today we're going to start eschatology, which, unlike all of the other theology sessions we did, that each took a week, a couple of them took two weeks, um, this one's going to take four weeks. And it's partly because of um, the size of the topic, but also um, because of how I wanted to approach it. And so we're going to approach it kind of like a funnel, meaning we're going to start with... um, kind of the big view, and then we're going to kind of keep narrowing it down to answer the question that everybody wants to know, which is, when is Jesus going to rapture the church? That'll be covered in the last week. I'll give you the exact date and time. (laughs) Not really. Not really. So, though I did mention last night Rod Parsley is doing a series right now. I think it's titled, I Know When Jesus Is Coming Back. I thought that would be interesting. So... Eschatology. Can you guys see okay? I mean, I'm kind of I'm trying to figure out where I should stand so that I'm not in front of the screen here because one of the things I decided to do with this was to try to make it as graphical, not as graphic, but as graphical as I could because the concepts we're going to be looking at really require pictures. You've, you've got to see it to be able to get your head around it. In fact, one of the last things that's on the last page of your notes, don't look there. Um, I actually have I color-coded everything to make it real visual. I've actually got color printouts for you that I can give you the last week um, that kind of lay out Daniel's 70th week in, in pretty great detail. And so for me, pictures always really help to be able to look at something and see the timeline and see where things are going. So um, that's why we're doing the presentation here, and that's um, why that, what I just did was I printed off this, the PowerPoint slides for you so you'd have all those pictures and then a place to write down notes with that. So there's no fill in the blanks today. Instead, just white space where you can keep some notes. Let's uh, talk about eschatology here. Eschatology, as we've defined um, all of these terms for you, eschatology refers to the study of the end of the world, study of end times. It includes things like the return of Christ, the millennium, the Antichrist, judgment of the wicked, and reward for the saints, the new heavens, the new earth, eternity. Those are all things included in the study of eschatology. Now, what's interesting about this, I would argue that Eschatology is is probably one of the most debated and most contentious areas in Christian theology. Some may disagree. You get the argument over, can you lose your salvation? So, you know, it's a pretty big argument for some. It gets pretty heated, but eschatology is a huge one. And there are opinions all over the map as to how eschatology sort of plays out. And I think there's good reason for that. Um, some things God has chosen to not completely reveal to us yet. And so it's much like a puzzle. We have a puzzle and we have some of the pieces, but I don't believe that we have all of the pieces yet. And like you might imagine, if you open up a box and somebody else has done the puzzle before you and lost some of the pieces, you don't always get the complete picture. But you get a pretty good idea of what the picture is. And eschatology is sort of like that. I've mentioned before I had a professor in seminary during our eschatology class. We were talking about a number of things. And he mentioned, you know, we have a section in the Grace Theological Library that was all on eschatology. And he said, there's one thing that almost everybody that's predicted when Christ would return and when the rapture would happen, there's one thing they all have in common. You can go to the library, you can pull all the books off the shelf. The one thing they all have in common is they've all been wrong. Because over the years, all these predictions and and everything else. So it's really, it's a difficult topic. Because um, the two biggest questions you really have to answer when you look at eschatology is whether or not the... Um, events that we see are to be interpreted in a literal sense or whether they're all metaphorical, meaning they're symbolic. 
And so that's a huge debate because if you obviously think that all the events we're going to talk about are literal events, then you're going to interpret them one way. If you think they're all purely symbolic, you're going to interpret them a different way. And there's not a whole lot of agreement on that. There is within certain circles. For instance, evangelicals would look at most of those as being literal events. Some in the covenant theology camp would look at some of them as being metaphorical. They're not real events. They're all symbolic. The second important question is for those of us that interpret them as literal events, um, are they past, present, or future? Not everybody agrees that all the things we're going to cover are future events. Some do, some don't. And so you get those two things. Are they metaphorical or are they literal? Are they future or are they past or are they present? Those things kind of frame the discussion. And we obviously have an opinion. Um, Dustin and I, as we, as we teach up here, come from a certain perspective. Many of you come from the same perspective. You may have been brought up in a church or um, been taught other things. So what I'm going to present to you is what I believe is the proper approach and understanding of eschatology. And we may not agree necessarily on everything, and that's okay. We can discuss that and talk about it. But my job is to stand up here and to teach you what I believe the scriptures teach in regard to eschatology. And so we're going to, we're going to go ahead and do that. Um, the church has struggled with this since at least the death resurrection of Christ. They've been debating these topics. They've not always agreed. Um, and so again, it's a rather difficult topic. So I'm going to present to you what I believe is a proper approach to understanding this, and we'll come to some conclusions. The way it's going to lay out here is today we're going to talk about the different views of what's called the millennium, and then we're going to get into Daniel's prophecies on what was revealed to him by the angel Gabriel and what was revealed to Nebuchadnezzar in terms of sort of the big picture. From Daniel until the millennium, what did he say was supposed to happen? So we're going to look at that today. Next week, we're going to look at what Jesus and what the book of Revelation say about future events. And so we'll actually get into the Olivet Discourse, and then we'll get into the book of Revelation and do a high-level view of how the book of Revelation is, is laid out. Okay, We'll get into some specifics. And then we'll look at, on the third week, we'll look at the different views of the rapture, because that's what everybody wants to know. When is Jesus Christ going to come back and take the church? So we'll lay out sort of the views on the rapture, and then I have a, a position on that. And um, I'm going to spend the last week talking very specifically about one of the views of the rapture and why I believe that that is probably the most probable. Um, and again, not everybody agrees um, on that. So I'm going to sort of lay that out. And so when we do that, we're going to get into some real granular study of the book of Revelation and see what, um, what John wrote about that. So now that you know exactly where we're going, let's go ahead and take a look at this. We're going to look first and foremost at the four different views of the millennium. And this is important because it's, it's important for us to understand when we listen to people and they talk about some of the prophetic texts, if you don't understand where they're coming from, it's easy to misunderstand them. And some of the people, I can guarantee you, some of the people that you listen to or that you've heard about um, don't come from the same perspective on the millennium that we do. And that might surprise you who some of these, these people are at times. And I'm not going to go as far as to say they're wrong as I don't believe that they're interpreting Scripture correctly. Um, but we're going to go ahead and do that. So the first view of the millennium is what we're going to call historic premillennialism. Historic premillennialism. Now, we're talking about, obviously, the, the, the period from the book of Revelation talks about the thousand-year reign of Christ. We call that the millennium. Okay? Stands for a thousand years. And so, 
a lot of eschatology hinges on that, on that millennium, and the events and how they relate to that. Does Jesus come back before that or after that? When's the rapture going to happen? You know, when do we see the Antichrist or do we see the Antichrist? It all sort of correlates with somebody's view on the millennium, that thousand year period. Okay? And so the first thing we want to look at here is what's called historic premillennialism. And I'm going to have to rely pretty heavily on my notes because even though I'm familiar with all of these, trying to remember all the details, it's just crazy. So, I want to make sure I'm going to be as accurate as possible here. This view is what we would refer to as the early church view. For the first 300 years of the church, this appears to be what they believed. And what this basically spells out is that you have over here Christ's first coming, and then at some point in the future, Jesus would return, that's the down arrow, and you would have this thousand year period of time where Christ reigns, and then you have a judgment at the end of that. Okay? Saints being resurrected, or, or even possibly just um, going on into eternity at that point. Um, the world being judged at that point. And this is referred to as historic premillennialism. Again, the first 300 years of church. And the reason we know that that's what they believed is by reading the writings of the church fathers. Now, one of the things that was interesting about this, and the reason we call it historic premillennialism, is because there's another form of premillennialism, which is more common today, and it's called dispensational premillennialism. It's different than this to some degree. So that's why we're going to have two of these that are called premillennialism. This one is historic, meaning it was held by the early church. Now, the writings of most of the church fathers suggested that this is exactly what they believe. Now, you'll notice on this, I don't have a place for the rapture here. And the reason for that is, if we look at the writings of the early church fathers, it appears they don't write specifically on it to any great detail, but the way that they talk suggests that they believed that the church would be here during the Great Tribulation, that they would suffer the wrath of the Antichrist here on earth, and that when Jesus returns, the rapture would be simultaneous with that, meaning the return of Christ to the earth, and the rapture happened at exactly the same time. Okay? That's something we refer to today as post-tribulationalism. But again, we're sort of guessing at that because they don't state specifically. They don't talk specifically about the rapture, which suggests that they believe the rapture was part of that second coming of Christ. And they did talk at great length about suffering under the Antichrist. So that would be this, this uh, historic premillennialism. Now, the second, I would say this view here is not all that common today. Okay? We don't see this a whole lot today. Let's go ahead and look at, whoops, let's go ahead and look at the uh, second view. This one's amillennialism. Now, amillennialism came about the fourth century under Augustine. Um, it was the official view of the Catholic Church, most Lutheran churches. Um, it's referred to in Reformed Christianity quite a bit. So, any denomination that has the word reformed into it oftentimes will be from an amillennial perspective. And if you look at the graphic here, what it basically teaches is that the period between the first coming of Christ and his second coming, that the period in between there, they refer to as the millennium. Now notice that would mean that it's not a literal thousand years. And it also, in their mind, is not a literal reign of Christ, but a heavenly reign. In other words, Christ is reigning now. Now, I have to be careful here because not every denomination has were reformed in it holds this position. And even within amillennialism, there's some variance. And that's the thing about eschatology is that even though you have this defined theology here, 
not everyone is going to, that calls themselves amillennial is going to agree to every specific thing, but this is the general picture. And so sometimes it's referred to as the realized millennium or millennium now. And the idea is that we are currently right now in that millennial period. Now, what amillennials do is they obviously interpret that thousand-year reign of Christ from the book of Revelation in a metaphorical or symbolic sense. They don't take it literally. However, they do take some things literally. So they kind of take this, you know, back-and-forth approach. Some things are literal, some things are symbolic, and they pick and choose as to which is which. And so something like the return of Christ. They see the return of Christ as being a literal return of Christ. They see the judgments as a literal judgment. They see resurrection as a literal resurrection. My upbringing in a Catholic church, I was taught that. But I was never taught about a thousand-year millennial reign of Christ literally here on earth. I was taught that we were kind of in that time now, that it's a heavenly reign. Christ is reigning now. This is his kingdom now. So that would be that would be your amillennialism. Um, they don't really look at the seven years of tribulation. We refer to it as the Great Tribulation or the seven-year trib period. They never took that quite literally either. So there's some things that they... Again, take figuratively and others that they take metaphorically. How about the third one? Post-millennialism. Take a look at this picture. What you see is that post-millennialists believe that there is a sort of thousand-year period. You know, give or take a little bit. So they don't necessarily believe that the thousand years is a literal thousand years. But, you know, it's a period of time. It might be a thousand years. It might be 1,500. It might be 976 and three months. But it doesn't necessarily refer to a literal thousand years. You'll notice I've got a little picture of a church there. That's because they believe that what the millennial kingdom is, is sort of the glory days of the glorious time of the church. Meaning, it's really Christ reigning through the church. They don't necessarily believe that Jesus Christ will return and be on earth for a thousand years. That what the thousand years refers to is the church here on earth having a glorious time of impact and and control and that Christ is reigning through that. And what's interesting about this is that probably the most popular form of this today is called Reconstructionism. And what that means is that we as a church reconstruct society. We redeem society. And it even goes as far as reinstituting some of the Old Testament laws like stoning homosexuals, punishing adultery by death. The goal is that we as a church sort of overcome and conquer society and bring about Christ's reign on earth. And once we do that, once the gospel is spread and once the earth is under control by, in some respects, the church or by the Mosaic law, then Christ returns. In other words, we've accomplished the task and prepared the earth for him, and then he'll return as a result. I've even got, um, let me see if I can find the names in here real quick, some of the individuals that um, follow this. Gary North, might have heard of his name. Gary DeMar, probably one of the most um, prolific proponents of Reconstructionism. Um, Kenneth Gentry, Larry Pratt, you may have heard of some of those names, um, they fall into that Reconstructionist camp. Now, not all post-millennials are Reconstructionists, um, but that seems to be the most famous. Um, It's also called Dominion Theology, um, to some degree. Um, I think it's a very dangerous thing. It actually is, you look at some of these individuals I mentioned, like Gary DeMar and Gary North, highly involved with politics. 
Partly because if you can get enough Christians in office, you can now institute Christian policies. You can now set up laws based on biblical principles, including things like outlawing certain sins and then punishing those sins. And so it can be kind of a very dangerous thing because it takes our focus off of, in some respects, the gospel and just recognizing that Jesus Christ is going to you know, work through us to save the world through the gospel and instead sort of can make the church become somewhat militant and sort of marching orders much like the Old Testament law. So that would be post-millennialism and again forms of it known as Reconstructionism. It was popular among Puritans. It really kind of started to raise up in about the 1600s to 1800s was when it was more popular. This again is not a super popular um, view today except for within that dominion theology the Reconstructionism um, in Christian politics. Um, some you might even say in some respects you know, Christian nationalism could sort of fit into that when you hear that term tossed around right now by the, by the left um, to try to attack Christians and those who are involved with politics and have a Christian worldview, they just sort of assume we want to enforce Christianity, Christianity upon the world and all of our laws should be that's part of that reconstructionist idea so let's move on to the uh, last one here this is dispensational Premillennialism. This is the camp that we as a church, as a whole, it's written into our statement of faith, dispensational premillennialism. What it teaches is that we have this period between the cross up until these two events that take place. Okay? That's the period we're in right now. It's called the church age. But then you see the up arrow. You have the rapture of the church. Then you got the down arrow, the return of Christ. Many within this camp would see there be a seven-year period between there called the tribulation. And it's after Christ comes down that he literally takes his throne and reigns on it for a thousand years in a literal earthly kingdom. Literally here, complete and total reign over God's creation. Everything brought under his feet. And then we have the judgments at the very end. So this would be dispensational premillennialism. This is actually dispensationalism. We're going to talk about that to help you understand it a little bit. This came about... As best we can tell about the 1800s, it was popularized by a man named John Nelson Darby, um, and actually by the Schofield Reference Bible. That was one of the first study Bibles, if you will, that published this as a dominant view, or at least within certain circles a dominant view. This is a camp that many of us would fit into, at least to some degree. But let's talk about this dispensational part of this. What does that actually mean? Dispensational theology interprets the Bible and God's redemptive plan through a series of dispensations or time periods, if you will, or administrations. Um, And the best way to describe it, I believe, is to say that God worked with different people at different times in different ways. So God worked with different people at different times in different ways. Now, most dispensationalists, in fact, Dallas Theological Seminary is a huge dispensational seminary. Grace Theological Seminary is a huge dispensational seminary. Um, Most dispensationalists sort of break down God's redemptive plan into these different periods. The first one is a dispensation of innocence, which was basically Adam and Eve before the fall. They were innocent. God walked in the garden with Adam and Eve. They had one command, don't eat from the tree. Right? Well, then... After the fall, we have the dispensation of conscience, which is from the fall to flood, which means in some respects, man's conscience ruled. Then we have the dispensation of human government, which goes from the Tower of Babel 
to Abraham. Then we have the dispensation of promise, which is Abraham to Moses. That's where God interacted. He worked with certain people. Who were the people he interacted with? Well, Abraham and Abraham's descendants. How did he interact with them? Through his covenant promise. So you have God working with a different individual, Adam, I mean with uh, Abraham, at a different time during Adam and his descendants' lifetime, in a certain way, through the covenant of promise that he made to him. Remember that uh, it was said that Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. That was his relationship with God, based on the covenant. After that, you have the dispensation of law, which comes about when God gives the law to Moses. So we now have God working with the Israelites, the people, at a different time, that period of time with the law, in a certain way, with the law. Okay? What happens after the law? We have the dispensation of, they call it grace, which is kind of weird because salvation has always been by grace. I'll touch on that in a second here. But we have what's called the dispensation of grace, which is from Pentecost to the rapture. That's the period we're in right now. We're in this dispensation of grace. The last dispensation is the end times. Primarily, the events surrounding the thousand-year reign of Christ. And so that's this idea of dispensationalism, that God worked with different people at different times in different ways. Now, the key to remember is that salvation has always been by grace and faith. Okay, Dispensation doesn't teach that there were times where people were saved through other means other than grace and faith. Let me give you an example. What were Adam and Eve expected to believe? God's promises regarding the tree and his provision for them, okay? And what happens when they fall? The first thing we see is the um, basically the first gospel, if you will, in Genesis 3, where it says that he's going to provide a seed. He's still going to provide salvation for them through this seed. What about Abraham? Well, we're told that Abraham wasn't saved by works. What was Abraham saved by? His belief in the promise of God. It was still belief. Now, the object of that belief hasn't necessarily always been Jesus Christ. And what I mean by that is, Jesus Christ's death paid the penalty for the sins, past, present, and future. But, did David know the name Jesus? No. But he understood God's promise. And so they've always been saved by belief in what God said, and placed their faith and trust in God, in what he said. In the same way that we do today. What do we place our faith in? Jesus Christ, because God has revealed him to us, told us, this is your means of salvation. So, It's always been by grace, and it's always been a result of their faith. So it doesn't teach works. It just simply says that they had to trust God at his word and what he had revealed to them at that time. And they may not have had the name Jesus, but they had to take God at his word for what it was that he promised them. Even when he told the Israelites, if you love me with your whole heart, soul, mind, and strength, things are going to be okay. He didn't say, believe in the name of Jesus back there in the Old Testament. But God knew that Jesus would pay the penalty for their sins. So, it's always been by grace. That's dispensational. And again, this is probably, this is, there's two dominant, theolo- or dominant frameworks. One is dispensationalism and how we interpret the scriptures. If you're a dispensationalist like Dustin, Dustin and I would fit into that camp to some degree. Um, you interpret the scriptures one way. And generally speaking, a dispensationalist takes all the events... All the end time events as literal events. They take them as chronological events. The other framework is something called covenant theology, which doesn't follow this idea of God working at different people at different times, but rather God worked off of promises, covenants, primarily three different covenants. 
those in that camp often are amillennialists or postmillennialists because they don't take all the events literally. They take some literally, some metaphorically. And again, the reason I think these things are important is because it helps us to understand where somebody's coming from. And I don't expect you to remember all these things. You just kind of have to remember, gee, just because I hear some guy talking about the rapture doesn't necessarily mean he's from the same camp that I'm from. And he may interpret things differently. Now, this actually became extremely popular back in the mid-1990s. Anybody know what happened in the 1990s? There were some really popular books that came out. What's that? Left Behind. That is when premillennial dispensationalism or dispensational premillennialism took off like a rocket. was basically because of the Left Behind series. Now, your famous dispensationalists would include people like um, Tim LaHaye and Jenkins, people that wrote the books, but also Chuck Swindoll, Charles, Charles Ryrie, John MacArthur, Jim Custer. Dustin and I would, in some respects, be in that camp for the most part. Um, you have others from the Presbyterian viewpoint, and, or Presbyterian, that would be more from the amillennial, sometimes postmillennial camp. And so, again, just sort of pay attention to the names, and sometimes it's a good idea if you are looking at, if you got a favorite author or somebody, just kind of do a Google search and say, is so-and-so amillennial? Is so-and-so premillennial? Is he a dispensationalist? And that'll at least help you get an idea of what kind of perspective they're coming from. Now, here in this church, we approach things from a dispensational perspective. That does not mean that we believe everything about dispensationalism. One of the things that dispensationalism in some circles teaches is that Israel and the church always remain separate even into the millennial kingdom, and then even into eternity. That there's still the church, and there's still Israel. I have a problem with that, because we're told we're grafted in, and I don't see that anywhere in the book of Revelation, or any of the descriptions of future life. I believe there's one people of God. We're brought together. Okay, Some dispensationalists are very strict about that, and keeping that separate. Others aren't so strict, like me. So, I'm kind of a soft dispensationalist, meaning I don't take everything that a dispensational um, theologian would hold. All right? So, these are the primary views. Now, again, why are these important? Why did I spend 25 minutes talking about these things? Well, it's because it's important to understand where people are coming from. Because, again, a lot of the people that we see now, that we see online, like John Piper and Packer and others that you see and you listen to, um, have different viewpoints on eschatology. They don't always agree. And sometimes you hear them say something and you assume that it fits, say, premillennial eschatology, but it might not because their perspective is very different. Or if you listen to somebody like Damar and you hear him talking about reinstituting the Mosaic Law and other things, well, now you kind of understand why, because of the viewpoint he's from. And so it's important to kind of understand these things. Um, helps us to, to basically also properly interpret the scriptures to know which perspective we're coming from. So you know now that, since I've told you, our perspective is from this dispensational premillennial viewpoint, which means we're going to interpret everything literally. I don't believe these things are figurative. Plus, this viewpoint means everything is yet to happen. Okay? We are still waiting. Everything that's yet, that's described right now is all future for us. The return of Christ, the rapture of the church, all the events of the book of Revelation. We believe all of those things are future. If I came from a different perspective, some of them might be, some of them won't be, some of them are past. So, this tells you kind of where we're coming from here. So, Let's go ahead and look at um, how this is going to play out. I've got a 
kind of a general single slide for you in your notes there that kind of lays them out. You can sort of see them together, see how they, what the differences are. But let's go into Daniel chapter 2. Turn to Jan- Daniel chapter 2 with me. The first passage we're going to look at is Daniel, Daniel chapter 2, and it's an interpretation of Nebuchadnezzar's dream. You remember, David is in exile. Nebuchadnezzar has this dream. He's disturbed by this dream, and so he calls on the wise men to interpret the dream for him. But he's pretty smart because he's not going to tell them the dream and then have them tell him what it, what it means. He knows that the only way he can trust them is that they can tell him what his dream was. So he calls on his wise men to interpret the dreams for him, but by, first of all, telling him. And his wise men kind of go, are you nuts? Nobody can do that. You've got to tell us your dream first, and then we'll tell you what it means. That's like going to see a psychic today, you know? She reads all the things you share with her, you know? And you think maybe she's telling you about the future and the dead people you know, but she's just tweaking you to get that information, right? So Nebuchadnezzar knew that. Well, he wasn't happy because his wise men couldn't do that, so he decides to put them all to death. And Daniel learns that, hey, they're going to put us all to, he's going to put us all to death here. So Daniel calls out, gets you know, his connections made, and basically says, hey, I can tell you what your dream is, and I can tell you what it means because the Lord's revealed it to me. And the Lord does. The Lord reveals Nebuchadnezzar's dream to Daniel and helps Daniel to understand it. It's Gabriel that does it. And so then what we have in Daniel chapter 2, verse 31 and following, is Daniel now tells Nebuchadnezzar what this dream is. And what's fascinating about this is Nebuchadnezzar's dream outlines the world empires from Daniel's day all the way down to the Millennial Kingdom. This gives us a framework to see what would happen in the world from Daniel's day until what happens when Jesus Christ returns. Okay? So, let's go ahead and read Daniel chapter 2. We're starting in verse 31. You, O king, were looking, and behold, there was a single great statue. That statue, which was large and of extraordinary splendor, was standing in front of you. And its appearance was awesome. That's the picture we have here. Somebody's imagination. But he saw this giant statue. Verse 32, the head of that statue was made of gold, its breasts and its arms of silver, its belly and its thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron and partly of clay. You continued looking until a stone was cut out of the out without hands and it struck the statue on its feet of iron and clay and crushed them. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver and the gold were crushed all at the same time and became like chaff from the summer threshing floors, and the wind carried them away so that not a trace of them was found. But the stone that struck the statue became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. So he's basically described to Nebuchadnezzar that what your what your statue was, and he lays it out for him. You saw this statue that had these chest and arms of silver, you had this belly and thigh of bronze, you had legs of iron, the statue had feet and um, iron of, of clay, and then all of a sudden this rock comes out of nowhere and totally obliterates it, shatters this thing. That's the dream that Nebuchadnezzar had. So the question is, what does it mean? Well, Daniel explains to him what it means. This was the dream, verse 36. Now we will tell its interpretation before the king. You, O king, are the king of kings, to whom the God of heavens has given the kingdom, the power, the strength, and the glory. And whatever the sons of men dwell in the beasts of the field or the birds of the sky, he has given them into your hand and has caused you to rule over them. You are the head of gold. So as you look at that, the head of gold at the very top 
That's Nebuchadnezzar's kingdom. The kingdom of Babylon. We move on. After you there will arise another kingdom inferior to you. Then another third kingdom of bronze which will rule over all the earth. Then there will be a fourth kingdom as strong as iron and as much as iron crushes and shatters all things so. Like iron that breaks in pieces it will crush and break all things or all these in pieces. In that you saw the feet and the toes partly of potter's clay and partly of iron. It will be a divided kingdom. But it will have all the toughness of iron in as much as you saw the iron mixed with common clay. As the toes of feet were partly in iron, of iron and partly of pottery, so some of the kingdom will be strong and part of it will be brittle. And in that you saw the iron mixed with common clay, then they will combine with one another in the seed of men, but they will not adhere to one another even as iron does not combine with pottery. Verse 44, In the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom which will never be destroyed, and that kingdom will not be left for another people. It will crush and put an end to all these kingdoms, but it will itself endure forever. Inasmuch as you saw that a stone was cut out of mountains without hands, and that it crushed the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold, the great God has made known to the king what will take place in the future so that the dreams so that the dream is true and its interpretation trustworthy. So here's the thing. We can break this down into world history. Let me tell you what it is. The head of gold, Babylon, and Assyria, they were ruled by Nebuchadnezzar and another king, Belshazzar. And that was from 671 B.C. to 538 B.C. That's the head of gold. The arms of chest and silver, that refers to the Medo-Persian Empire, which came after Babylon. It was ruled by Cyrus and Darius, from 538 to 331 B.C. We actually have a record of them in the scripture as well. Cyrus and Darius, at the time that the Israelites were able to return back to their land after captivity. Then the belly and the thighs that were made of bronze, that's the Greco-Macedonian Empire, which began with Alexander the Great. It lasted from 331 to 160 B.C. Then you have the legs of iron, that's the great Roman Empire. The Caesars ruled that from 160 B.C. to 395 A.D. It was an extremely long reign. About 600 years or 500 years there. Now, what's interesting about that particular kingdom is it didn't really get conquered. You notice all these others were conquered. But the Roman Empire just kind of fell apart. Yeah, split in half. Just kind of fell apart. Kind of broke up into smaller kingdoms, etc., now the feet of iron and clay, it's referred to as a divided kingdom made up of ten smaller nations that some would see that as a result of what happened to the um, Roman Empire. But the more general understanding of this is that it refers to the revised Roman Empire that takes place in the end times. And part of that is because it mentions these ten smaller kingdoms and that's referenced in the book of Revelation. So when we get down to these feet of iron and clay, most premillennial dispensationalists would view that as a as a rebuilding of the Roman Empire within that um, tribulation period that we refer to the seven years and the things that we see in the book of Revelation. That's the perspective that I take. But again, some interpret that as sort of, oh, just the nations and everything that happened after Rome kind of fell apart and we're sort of in that today. And there may be some validity to that because what happens is it gets revised, definitely, in the end times. And then the last kingdom that's mentioned there is the crushing rock, the kingdom of God. And we would interpret that as being 
that millennial kingdom of Christ that God destroys. And we see that in the book of Revelation where Jesus basically wipes them out and then establishes his millennial kingdom for a thousand years. And so this is the picture that was given to King Nebuchadnezzar and then revealed to Daniel into what to expect with God's plan for humanity. And notice that it lays out, again, the time period all the way from Nebuchadnezzar and Daniel's captivity in Babylon all the way up to the millennial kingdom of Christ. That's our framework for understanding eschatology. All right? Now, we're going to go on to another passage here because Daniel actually gets more specific about what to expect with that. So that's our big picture. That's the top of the funnel. But then we start to come down that funnel a little bit. And if you look at Daniel 9, Daniel chapter 9, we're going to read verses 24 through 26 in a minute here. Well, we'll go ahead and we'll start at verse uh, 20. Daniel chapter 9, verse 20. Now while I was speaking and praying and confessing my sins and the sin of my people Israel and presenting my supplication before the Lord, this is Daniel talking, my God in behalf of the holy mountain of God, while I was still speaking in prayer, then the man Gabriel, that's angel, that's angel Gabriel, whom I had seen in the vision previously, came to me in my extreme weariness about the time of the evening offering. He gave me instruction and talked with me and said, O Daniel, I have now come forth to give you insight with understanding at the beginning of your supplication and the command was issued, and I have come to tell you, for you are highly esteemed, so give heed to the message and gain understanding of the vision. So now Daniel has another vision here. And this vision takes what Daniel's already been told about these kingdoms, and it now becomes a little more specific in terms of the timing. How long is that going to take? All of those kingdoms we saw, how long is all that going to take? And now that's revealed to some degree to Daniel here. And you'll notice, verse uh, 24, 70 weeks has been decreed for your people in your holy city to finish the transgression, to make an end of sin, to make an atonement for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, and to heal, seal up vision and prophecy and to anoint the most holy place. So what Daniel tells us is that there's going to be this period of time, 70 weeks he calls them. Okay? And he says that they're going to accomplish that at the end of that 70 weeks, six things are going to be accomplished. The first three deal with sin. He says... It's going to finish transgression, it's going to end sin, and it's going to make atonement for mankind. The second three actually address God's kingdom and eternity. He says it'll bring everlasting righteousness, it'll seal up visions and prophecy, and it'll anoint the holy place. That's right out of verse 24 there. So again, the first three finish transgression, end sin, and make atonement, and then bring everlasting righteousness, seal up visions and prophecy, anoint the holy place. He says... Those things are going to happen at the end of what he calls here 70 weeks. He's just given them the timetable of when these things are going to occur. Now, what are these weeks? As you, as you work through not just this passage but other passages, it becomes really clear that these aren't real weeks. These weeks are periods of seven years. And that's spelled out because we're even told the number of days elsewhere. Daniel will tell us the exact number of days. The book of Revelation includes the exact number of days. And so when you do the math, this 70 weeks is actually a period of 490 years. Okay? Kind of do the math on that. Now, he actually kind of breaks it down. Look at verse 25. 
So you are to know and discern that from the issuing of a decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, there will be seven weeks and 62 weeks. It will be built again in the plaza and the moat, even in times of distress. And so basically what he tells Daniel is, there's going to be a period of 70 weeks. Okay? From basically a particular point in time until these six things begin to happen that he's just laid out. And he tells us when that period actually is going to start. You notice that he says that there's going to be 62 weeks, I'm sorry, verse 25 there. He says that there will be, um, from the decree to restore the rebuilding Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince. So he tells us that there's going to be this period of time when there's a decree issued for them to go back and rebuild Jerusalem. We actually know when that is. It was a literal event. I'll give you the time in a minute. And he says, so from that time, okay, on until the Messiah is cut off, is going to be a certain period of time. And he tells us, it's 69 weeks. Notice that he says that there's going to be the first seven weeks, which is a total of 400, or I'm sorry, 49 years, from when this decree is issued to go back to Jerusalem until something else actually happens. He says, After the 62 weeks, the Messiah will be cut off and have nothing, and the people of the prince who is to come will destroy the city and the sanctuary, and its end will come with a flood. Now here's what's kind of interesting. Let me give you the the actual details here. The decree to rebuild Jerusalem was given by Artaxerxes in 457 B.C. Okay? That allowed Ezra and the Jews to go back and rebuild the city. I'll give you the reference there. Um, Ezra chapter 7, verse 6 through 10. And then Ezra chapter 9, verse 9. That's when the decree was given to Ezra. Go back and rebuild the temple. So that started actually in 457 B.C. That's the decree over there. Okay? Well, the temple took actually 49, or that period of time there took 49 years to finish the project for them to rebuild Jerusalem. It's recorded in scripture. We know it historically. So that actually was completed in 408 B.C. So we know it was exactly 49. It was seven weeks, if you will. So what Gabriel told Daniel here, Daniel, this is what's going to happen, actually was born out in history. The decree was given. Ezra and Nehemiah, they went back. They rebuilt Jerusalem. It took the 49 years, exactly as Daniel was told. Okay, But then he says something else will happen. He says at the end of the 69 weeks, in other words, the 7 weeks plus another 70 or 62 weeks, what he says is Messiah is going to be cut off. That's a reference to Jesus Christ, most likely his crucifixion. And what's interesting, if you do the math, it takes us right up to about A.D. 27. Just like Gabriel revealed. And so what we find here in these verses is a timeline that covers those kingdoms and it gives us more specifics as to how to figure the timing out of that. And so he basically says there's going to be these 70 weeks from one particular point up to when everything is accomplished. Everything is finished. These six things. There's an end to sin. There's atonement's going to be made. Everlasting righteousness will be brought in. Visions and prophecy will be sealed up. The holy place will be anointed. And so when we put the stuff up on the screen here, what you see is that over here, 
Daniel had broken up, or Gabriel had broken up this prophecy of 70 weeks, which is a total of 490 years. He broke that up into a period of seven weeks, which has to do with the rebuilding of the temple. That was accomplished. We know the dates. Then he breaks it up into another 62 weeks that takes us up to the crucifixion of Christ, which again is approximately 27 AD. could be as late as 30 or so, maybe 33. But that literally happened. But see, there's one more week that's left, and that's over here in the end. The problem is there's this gap between those. Now, why do we kind of know that to be the case? Well, if the first seven weeks are fulfilled literally, and they were, and if the next 62 weeks were filled, fulfilled literally, and they were, what should we expect about this last week? We should expect it to be fulfilled literally, but it wasn't. Which means what? Could it still be future? We believe it is. Because again, it's a literal fulfillment. Verse 27. Well, actually, let's go back to verse 26. And after the 62 weeks, the Messiah will be cut off and have nothing. And the people of the prince who is to come, that means the people who ultimately are related to the coming Antichrist, doesn't mean the Antichrist would be here on earth at that time when Christ was crucified or when the temple was destroyed, but it says the people that belong to him will actually destroy the city and the sanctuary and its end will come with a flood. Even to the end, there will be war, desolations are determined. What's interesting is it only says that after that that 69th week is finished, these things will happen. It doesn't tell us exactly when the Messiah is going to be cut off. It just simply says, after this period ends, the Messiah will be cut off, which means, again, Jesus could not have been crucified before A.D. 27, because that's where that took us to. He could be crucified any time after that. Well, we know he was crucified somewhere between 27 A.D. and probably 33 A.D., right? But then he also says that people that belong to the Antichrist or are associated with him will ultimately destroy the temple and destroy Jerusalem. Anybody know what happened in A.D. 70? The Romans marched in, annihilated the Jews. They figure almost, could have been as many as one million Jews were wiped out. The temple was destroyed. Jerusalem... Josephus, whether you can take him at his word or not, describes, um, I think it's Josephus, describes blood two feet deep pouring out of the city. Probably some exaggeration there to some degree. But it happened. It was destroyed. It was destroyed by the Romans. Okay, If we understand the revised Roman Empire being the empire during the millennial, or during the um, tribulation period, that would make sense. The people of the prince. Who were they? The Romans came in and destroyed Jerusalem. And so again, all those things happened, but yet we now have this one other piece, if you will, which is this final 70th week. We refer to it as Daniel's 70th week. So now, we're going to actually go ahead and look at that. What does that final... And again, I'm making an assumption that this seven-year period, the only week that's left from Daniel's prophecy is going to be fulfilled in a literal sense because everything else was fulfilled in a literal sense. We saw that the kingdoms, we can put the dates and times in the groups that those kingdoms were. We saw that fulfilled literally. We see this stuff fulfilled literally here. So that last seven years, I would argue, makes sense to treat it as a literal fulfillment. Now let's look at what Daniel says. The final two passages are going to focus on just this 70th week. That's Daniel chapter 9 and then Daniel chapter 12. So let's read Daniel chapter 9, verse 27. And it says, And he will make a firm covenant... Let me go ahead and change this for you. And he will make a firm covenant 
Who's he? The prince. Okay? The Antichrist. And he will make a firm covenant with the many for one week. That's the seven years. But in the middle of the week, he will put a stop to the sacrifice and grain offering. And on the wing of abomination will come he who makes desolate, even until a complete destruction, one that is decreed is poured out on the one who makes desolate. So what is he basically describing there? All right. So here's the picture as we're looking at it. The first green rectangle, this section from here over, okay, is that last week, that last seven years, okay? When we look into the scriptures, we know that it's exactly seven years because part of Daniel, Daniel chapter 12, verse 7, calls it times, times and half a times. You do the math on what that means, and that's basically 42 months or three and a half years. That's half the tribulation period, or half that period, right? Okay? The first 1,260 days are all meaning calculated, and I won't get into the details on that too much, but we know that that week is an exact number of days, okay? total of 1,260 days makes up that first half and then the second half, okay? Combine them and you get your seven years. So what happens? Daniel says that the Antichrist will make a covenant with Israel. That's that little sheet of paper. That's the covenant. But he says in the middle of that, he's going to go into the temple and desecrate it. He's going to set himself up as God. And that happens right in the middle, Okay? But then as we, as we read through this, what we see is that there's some pretty nasty things that actually happen after he does that. Okay? Let's go ahead and look at um, Daniel chapter 11, verse 31. Daniel chapter 11, verse 31. Forces from him will arise, desecrate the sanctuary fortress, and do away with the regular sacrifice. And they will set up the abomination of desolation... We're going to go to um, 2 Thessalonians now, if you will. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. Paul has something to say about this. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 3. Uh, verse three. Let no one in any way deceive you, for it will not come unless the apostasy comes first. He's talking there about the day of the Lord, God's wrath. So it's not going to come yet. Unless the apostasy comes first, that's a turning away. And the man of lawlessness, that's a reference to the beast, to the Antichrist. The man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself above every so-called God or object of worship, so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, displaying himself as being God. So what Paul basically describes, is what Daniel describes, is that at some point in the middle here, the middle point, the Antichrist goes into the temple, breaks his covenant with Israel, sets himself up as God, declares himself to be God, does it in the temple, desecrates the temple, and then at that point prevents Israel from doing their sacrifices. So obviously that requires that a new temple be built at some point, has to be in existence in this last 70 or seven years. But that's the picture that he lays out for us. Okay? Jump down to chapter 12 of Daniel. Daniel chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. Now at that time, Michael the Ar- or the great prince, who stands guard over the sons of your people, will arise. 
And there will be a time of distress such as never occurred since there was a nation until that time. And at that time, your people, everyone who is found written in the book will be rescued. Now notice what he's talking about here. He basically says that after the, after the Antichrist comes in and desecrates the temple, breaks his covenant, says that there's going to be this tremendous time of distress, like it's never been seen. Okay, But he also says that at that point, God's people will be rescued. Refers to him here as God, or your people, everyone who is found written in the book, all saved people, he says, will be rescued at that point. He's referring here, in this context, to Israel. Verse 2, Many who are asleep in the dust of the ground will awake, these to everlasting life, but others to disgrace and everlasting contempt. Now, I want you to jump down to verses 11 through 13. From the time that the regular sacrifice is abolished, and the abomination of desolation is set up, he says there will be 1,290 days instead of 1,260. How blessed is he who keeps waiting and attains to the 1,335 days. Now he adds more days to it. But as for you, go your way to the end. Now, what's he just described here? And I know I'm running through a lot of stuff here, but basically what Daniel describes is he says this seven-year period is going to look like this. Antichrist will sign a covenant with Israel, probably meaning he'll allow Israel to continue to worship and make their sacrifices. But halfway through that, he decides he's done with it. He marches into the temple, sets himself up as God, declares himself as God, tells Israel they cannot do their sacrifices anymore. But in addition to that, he begins to persecute God's people. A time of tremendous distress. And it's at that time that the angel comes in, ultimately, rescues God's people, rescues Israel. And he says after that, There'll be a time of salvation, resurrection, and a time of judgment at the very end there. But then he goes on and he says that from this point of desecration in the middle, there's 1,290 days, which takes you 30 days past the end of that week. But then he says, happy are those, or blessed are those, who actually make it to the 1,335th day, which adds another 45 days. Now the problem here is that Daniel doesn't tell us what those extra 30 days or what the extra 45 days are for. He just tells us they're going to exist. Okay? But that's the picture he gives us now. Next week we're going to actually go into the Olivet Discourse, Jesus, because Jesus talks about this very same thing. And then we're going to get into the book of Revelation, which covers the 70th week, and it describes the exact same thing. The interesting thing is, Jesus gives us more details, and then the book of Revelation gives us even more details. So we're going to continue to fill this picture in, including what those extra 30 days are for, and what the 45 days are for. I'll give you a little bit of a precursor. These extra 30 days, I believe, are when God pours out His wrath on the earth. It's a very short period of time. And those 45 days are a time of restoration before Jesus starts his millennial kingdom. He arrives, and there's a 45-day period where everything is prepared, and Jesus takes his throne at the end of that 45 days. So this is the picture that we're looking at. So I know it's a lot of information for you, a ton of stuff, but why is it that this stuff becomes so important for us? Why do we study eschatology? And why does knowing stuff like this, the details, people will say, I'm just a pan-millennialist. I don't know. It'll all just pan out on the end. But why would God waste his breath? Look at what God tells, or what what, um, Gabriel tells Daniel here about these things in verse 13. But as for you, go your way to the end. 
Then you will enter into rest and rise again for your allotted portion of the end of the age. He's encouraging Daniel here. Go to the end. You know? Um, when you think about... Well, in fact, actually, look at verse 10, right before that. 10 through 13. Many will be purged, purified, and refined, but the wicked will act wickedly, and none of the wicked will understand. Then look at this. But those who have insight will understand. From the time that the regular Saturday, and he goes on, right? What's the point? Jesus himself said he warned his disciples about things that would come so that they might be prepared. We're not to be caught off guard. When you think about um, being told that Jesus will come like a thief in the night, or people will get caught off guard, we're told, but you, you won't be. Why won't we? Because if we know these things in advance, we know what to look for, then we're prepared for what's going to happen and we shouldn't be caught off guard. We shouldn't be freaked out. That doesn't mean we have to look forward to some of the stuff that's going to be laid out for us. But we know that it's coming. It helps to be prepared. And we're told here that the wicked won't be. The wicked will be caught off guard. You know, one of the interesting things about the the different views of the millennium that I laid out for you is that most of the views are that it's amillennial, or post-millennial, those views have a very optimistic view of the future. They believe things are going to get better. In fact, even in the post-millennial or the reconstructionist viewpoint, things are getting better. We're going to Christianize the world and the gospel is going to overcome and this is going to be a great place to live and we're bringing in the glory age of the church, especially reconstructionism. They believe we're going to have this glorious age of the church that we're going to finally usher in Jesus. He'll come back when everything's all set up for him by us. It's very optimistic. Well, one of the reasons why that view kind of fell apart after World War I and World War II is because after World War I and World War II, people started going, you know, things aren't getting better. They're getting worse. And that helped foster the explosion of the premillennial dispensational viewpoint because reality said things aren't getting better. We've been here for 2,000 years and the world's looking an awful lot like it's going back towards the flood days, pre-flood days. And so the, the viewpoint that we hold here is that things aren't getting better. Things are progressing to get worse. But even though the earth might be getting worse in the sense that violence is increasing, sexual immorality is increasing, sin is increasing, all those things, people will continue to reject God that the gospel still spreads and people still get saved. It's not a redemption of culture and society, but a redemption of individuals, people who are being saved within that nasty culture, but culture as a whole continues to deteriorate. And that kind of makes sense because that's the pattern you see in the Old Testament. Never, things never got better until God intervened, chastised. You see that in Israel's history. What happens before the flood? It got to the point where God says, I've got to wipe out the earth and start from scratch. Why? Because they progressed to total degradation. And so we would hold a very pessimistic view from a cultural, earthly standpoint that things are going to progress to the point where God finally says, now it's time. I've been patient long enough, and it's now time. And we see that it ends with God pouring out his wrath on the earth very rapidly and very decisively to ultimately chastise, to judge, and then to bring about Jesus' kingdom. And we don't see it get really good until Jesus' kingdom. Does that make sense?
So it's good for us to know these things because we know how the future lays out. We know what to expect. Nothing should catch us off guard. We may not know all the timing of everything. You know, you can check with Rod and maybe he'll give you the date and time. But we may not know that, but we know what to look for. We know the signs to look for. And what's interesting is we are told to look for signs. And we'll get into that in a little bit. So, that's our introduction here basically to our eschatology series. Again, next week we'll look more specifically at at, um, what Jesus has to say in the book of Revelation, which we'll fill in some pictures. we get some neat details. And we'll just keep marching towards, you know, getting to the end of that funnel. All right?